We're going to be uh, talking about um, the Bible uh, in depth for the next several weeks. I know that doesn't come as a surprise to those of you who showed up for church, uh, because at church you always talk about the Bible. We're going to be doing it a little differently, I hope, uh, instead of coming at it um, as though the words on these pages are true because they're in the Bible. Um, I want us to walk that back a little bit and realize that for non-Christian, non-religious, skeptical people who are secular-minded and uh, often cynical about all things religious, the idea, this circular logic that we put forth, which says that things in the Bible are true because they're in the Bible, <laughs> doesn't, is not sufficient for people who aren't, you know, washed in the blood of the lamb, like us who have been in church all of our lives. We have to be careful about the assumptions we make and why we make them. And so instead of talking about one or two verses every week as if they're true because they're on these pages, I want to talk about why the stuff that's on these pages is true and trustworthy to begin with. Does that make sense? All right, so chapter and verse is going to take us through the rest of the summer. And if it's your first time here, you've come at a great time. You started uh, at the story with a new conversation, a new set of sermons. And let me welcome you here. My name is Eric, and it's great uh, to, have, to have you with us. Uh, it's great to be pulling out. We're out of, uh, out of chairs um, today, and we didn't even serve food like last week. So maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe that's why you came back. You thought we were going to serve food again. No, that's just... Once in a while, that's to, that's to coerce you to come on holiday weekends, pretty much. Anyway, that's our strategy. So, uh, so we're talking about the Bible uh, for the next um, several weeks. This is one thing that I think is, is a truism. As you look at all of the many, many studies that have been done about the Bible and people's relationship to it, and this, these are religious studies, but also secular uh, sort of social science studies that have been done, almost without fail, the more a person knows about the Bible, the more they appreciate it, the more they respect it. Even if they're not a religious person, the more that you know about the Bible yourself, the more you will naturally tend to respect and appreciate it for what it is. Um, on the other hand, um, people who tend to be most hostile toward the Bible are often um, nearly or entirely ignorant of what it actually says. They've only heard what other people say it says. And so they base their anger on uh, the words of others instead of the words of the Bible itself and really understanding things like context. And so uh, I'm, I'm coming at, that, uh, at this series from that angle, hoping that for many of us, this series will present an opportunity to reset your relationship with the Bible and kind of hopefully delete some of the stuff that you've been told about the Bible by other people, often people like me holding the Bible, telling you to believe what it says, instead of searching for the answers on your own. So I, I hope that you will see this series as an opportunity to begin your own search for answers. You can take your uh, study guides out and follow along um, with me. Those are just a tool for some of you to use uh, to stay with me through the sermon. I heard your feedback on our study guides. Uh, some of you responded to our uh, online survey. I'm gonna try to put fewer questions on there and leave you more space to write your own musings and thoughts and inspirations as we go through the sermon. Obviously, I'm coming at this set of sermons. I'm trying to be as honest as I can and as welcoming as I can to non-religious, skeptical, secular people, spiritual but not religious types of people. Because I've been there, I've been one. But I do come at this from a, a biased point of view I love the Bible. I spend a lot of time in the Bible. And I have come, I spent a whole life practicing how to read the Bible. But, you know, it really does take a lot of practice to learn how to read the Bible well. How to interpret the words on these 
pages because the Bible is an incredibly complex document. And as we start this series, I think it's helpful for us to remember that the Bible is not a book. The Bible is not one book written by one person in one place and time from one perspective and point of view. The Bible is incredibly complex. It's made up of 66 different books written by at least 40 different authors. And they write in over nine different literary genres over a thousand years time and in many different places and contexts. And so we have to keep that in mind as we approach this book. If, if, if the Bible, as you've opened it, has ever felt inconsistent, as if you've read from one book to the next and you're like, wait, 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 that's not what he just said here. Why is it different here? This is why it is a completely complicated and, and complex uh, set of uh, materials, a set of books. And so it's natural to be confused by the stuff that you engage uh, on these pages. Uh, a few months back, I was strong-armed by my eight-year-old daughter to go uh, ice skating. Um, any, any ice skaters here today? Good, good, that's good, because uh, I learned that day to absolutely hate people that are good at ice skating. I went, I went after her begging me for weeks to take her ice skating at the Galleria, which the only thing worse than ice skating is the Galleria. <laughs> and we went there and, you know, I had ice skated once before in my life when I was nine years old and like 90 pounds and really flexible. I could like stretch my ankle behind my neck and stuff back then. And, I was pretty good at ice skating, you know, just uh, randomly so. Like, I didn't wipe out a lot or hurt myself. And I thought, you know, what difference could 28 years and 120 pounds possibly make? <laughs> Apparently a lot of difference because it was the worst half hour of my life. I was humiliated. I was stranded on the ice a lot. Have you ever seen Bambi? When Bambi gets stuck on the ice and his legs get all tangled up, Picture this scene, but instead of a cute baby deer next to Thumper, picture this grown, awkward man standing in front of his mortified eight-year-old daughter. She was the only person on the ice more embarrassed than I was. It was awful. And uh, to make matters worse, like there were these pros there, like working at the ice rink, you know, and I was like, I think there's something wrong with my skates. You know, I like stumble over to this girl and she's like 15 pounds and, and tiny and she's got her little ice little tights on and, and she's, and, and I said, I think they gave me the wrong skates. I was thinking mine looked different than everyone else's rental skates. Maybe they mistook me for a hockey player. Thank you for not laughing. Most of you, except for three. I was like, maybe I'm, maybe I look like a professional. Maybe they gave me the pro skates. That's why I'm struggling. And the little 10 pound girl was like, no, no, those are the trainer skates. We give those to the beginners. And <laughs> Uh, adding insult to injury, you know, and, uh, but the worst part, the worst part was the other skaters, the, the really good, the 10% of people on the ice that day that were excellent skaters because they are the most arrogant people. They know how good they are and they know how awful you are and you can basically feel them judging you the whole time. They hate the fact that you're on the ice with them. Like you don't belong there, you know, and they spin around and they speed around the ice and I'm standing there, you know, clinging to the wall for dear life. And I'm there like thinking, why did I come here? 
And obviously I came because my daughter told me to, but I also think, I looked around and I was like, 90% of the people here are just like me. They're clinging to the wall for dear life and they're counting down the minutes until they can be here long enough to feel like they got their money's worth. 90% of us were there and I'm like, why do we do this to ourselves? And people just kept coming, paying money to come. And I'm like, because the thought of ice skating is so much better than the reality. It's in the movies, it's romantic. People seem to enjoy it. That 10% of the population, they're amazing at it. So maybe I can be too. But it just doesn't really turn out that way. And as I stood there hating my life, I thought to myself, this must be how it feels for 90% of the people I know to pick up the Bible and try to understand it. Like there's that 10% of the population that really gets it and they read it well and they want you to know they read it well and they want you to know that you don't. And they make you feel like you're less of a person or less of a, of a good person to, to, to not be able to read the Bible as well as they do in the know it chapter and verse. And so they, they, they cut you down a little bit in that way and maybe realize that so many people address the Bible in the same way that I address ice skating that day because they think the idea of understanding the Bible is better than actually opening the Bible and reading it because it takes so many years of practice in terms of learning how to interpret and understand it and read the, the words on the pages. It can be so frustrating and humiliating. It can be painful, much like my ice skating experience. Uh, if you are, are confused by it, as many of us are. I love the Bible, but I also find it highly confusing at times, and I also find myself doubting sometimes what I read there. Some of it is very hard to accept. If you feel that way, it's perfectly normal. You should feel that way. Because the Bible is complicated. And as if the Bible weren't complicated enough, we add to the complexity of the Bible by superimposing our cultural uh, assumptions on top of what the Bible actually says. So there's all sorts of things that people think the Bible says that the Bible never actually says because the Bible has been a part of our social fabric for so long. We've told and retold the same stories in the same ways for so long that we've come to accept things that, as biblical that are not even in the Bible. And so we muddy the waters even more. I'll give you an example. Y'all know the nativity story, right? The Christmas story, I'm about to ruin Christmas for you. And I wouldn't tell you what I'm about to tell you in December. I'm gonna tell you this in July so that you'll forget it by December and we'll still be friends. Almost everything that you see in this picture is culturally accurate, but not biblically so. It's a product of our telling and retelling of the stories of our social fabric you know, the Charlie Brown Christmas special, Linus and all that stuff, the stories that we love and we overlay that stuff onto what the Bible actually says. Let me give you some, some spe uh, specific examples here. For example, Mary's birth emergency. Everybody knows that Mary and Joseph had to travel in a hurry from Nazareth to Bethlehem because of the census. Everybody knows that Mary rode that donkey nine months pregnant and the minute they rode into Bethlehem, that very night her water broke on the back of that poor wet donkey and they had to find a place to give birth because that baby was coming right then and, and, and that's how it happened. Jesus came that very night. That's what we think happened. That's the story we tell. But what does the Bible actually say about that night? This is the only account of that part of the story in the whole Bible from Luke chapter one. This is what it says about that night. 
Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth to Bethlehem. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. While they were there. Does that sound like an emergency? 21, where is the donkey? Where's the emergency? Where's the urgency? Where's the water breaking? They go to Bethlehem. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. That's all the Bible says about that story. We have superimposed the other stuff. We filled in the blanks with fun cultural things that we tell ourselves. All right? Some of you are thinking, well, wait, no, 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 Pastor. You're missing the story here because I know that Joseph took Mary to the inn and there was a grumpy old innkeeper there. I've seen it in the Christmas pageant at whatever Springs in Arkansas or whatever they do that story about the Christmas play. And there's this guy that turns him away even though she's about to give birth and they just got to Bethlehem and why doesn't he have more mercy on them? I know the innkeeper is in the story. I hate to tell you there is not an innkeeper and the whole Bible narrative about Christmas, he never makes an appearance. And there's not even an inn. <laughs> Are we still friends? <laughs> I just messed up like half of our Christmas songs. <laughs> there's not even an inn. Let me explain. This one is really on the Bible translators more than on our social stories that we uh, tell, you know, at, at Christmas. This is, has to do with the King James Version, the 1611 translation into the, the King's English, when for some reason the translators took this very common word in the Christmas story, that, a common word that means guest room, and they translated it as in. And this is uh, the story from Luke 1. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Some of you are thinking, no, 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 my Bible says there was no room for them in the inn. I'm just telling you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, that's not what that word means. And we know this because the same word appears later in the same gospel and the same translators in the King James Version in Luke chapter 22 translate it this way. The same word from Luke chapter 22, verse 11. Say to the owners of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room? Now in the King James Version, they translate this one as guest room. But back in the Christmas story, they translate it as in. And we think it's because the translators of King James Version didn't understand why and how to fit it into the story that Joseph and Mary were looking for a guest room in Bethlehem, this city that they just arrived in. And so they had to figure out a way to make sense of it. And so maybe it was really an inn or a hotel or a hostel or something. They superimpose their own culture onto what the Bible actually says. The explanation is very easy. It goes like this. Joseph was not from Nazareth. Joseph was from Bethlehem. Joseph had just moved to Nazareth to find work. And that's where he met Mary. Joseph's family still lived in Bethlehem. All his people still were there. Who do you think Joseph and Mary stayed with when they went back to Bethlehem for the census? With Joseph's family. In Joseph's family's house. We could go back to that Luke 1, the last passage that we, that we read when, uh, when the, the baby is born. We have, there we go. Oh, there was no guest room available for them. 
makes a lot of sense if they're staying with Joseph's people. All right. Let me explain why this makes sense. It, it goes back to archaeology and what the homes in first century Bethlehem looked like. They looked something like, like this, and they were two-story uh, homes, most of them. They were built on top of caves. This one happens to be in Nazareth, but the same kind of thing happened in Bethlehem. These columns are not original to the structure. They built these columns in so that the cave wouldn't collapse in on itself. This is from the first century uh, and they've excavated this. And so the family would live up in this part. Kids would sleep here by the door, which makes sense in some of Jesus's parables. He talks about someone knocking on the door and not wanting to wake the kids up and stuff like that. So the kids slept here by the door. Family life happened over here. This was the ceremonially clean part of the house, according to Leviticus. So the family ate and slept and played up here. Down below in the cave is where the animals were kept, the livestock during inclement weather seasons and at night to keep them safe. And in almost every one of these caves that they've excavated, they have found these feeding troughs where the animals would eat and drink. And we have come to know these feeding troughs as mangers. And it wasn't something that was out in a barn somewhere off in a random field. These were kept inside the home to feed the animals down below in the cave. I'm going to give you a matrix moment for your Christmas story for the rest of your life here. It's going to blow your mind. But it's very likely that Jesus was born in the cave below his family home than he was out in some random field in a barn <clears throat> among the hay and all that stuff. Are we okay? Can we still be friends? I hope we're good here. I, I only say all this to say that we've superimposed so much of what we think the Bible says onto what the Bible actually says that it's hard to know the difference anymore. We muddy the waters. And with the Christmas story, it's not that harmless. The stuff that we've said so far, it doesn't affect the, the whole uh, thrust of the story and the main themes, right? Except for this one part of the Christmas story that I got to talk about because this one really gets my goat. It's the wise men, you guys. The wise men. I just can't take it. I can't take it anymore. If your nativity scene at home has wise men in it. Just take your phone out and unfriend me right now. Just, it's over between us. These guys don't even show up for two years. They don't belong in any of your nativity scenes. That hymn, We Three Kings of Orient Are, it might be the worst hymn ever written. It's just full of lies. This hymn is gonna be played on repeat in hell for all of eternity because there's nothing true about it. We don't know if there were three of them. We know they brought three gifts. There could have been a hundred of them. The Bible doesn't tell us how many there were. We know for sure they weren't kings. They read the stars. They were astrologers. We know they weren't from the Orient, which is mildly racist, whoever wrote this hymn. <laughs> they were from Persia, present day Iran, we think. If we were going to rename this hymn more accurately, instead of We Three Kings of Orient Are, it would be something like We Numerous Astrologers of Present-Day Iran, maybe. <laughs> Which just, I don't think it fits. I, it doesn't roll off the tongue as well. But at least it's more accurate. I only say all this just to point out how 
we have superimposed our, our own ideas on top of what the Bible actually says. Most of the Christmas stuff is truly, truly harmless. You can go to your Christmas plays and, and applaud. You don't have to get up and protest because it's not biblically accurate. You know, it, it, uh, it doesn't affect the theme of the story. But sometimes we cross the line from talking about filling in some of the blanks and gaps harmlessly to actually changing the themes of the story the Bible tells. And this is where we have to be very careful because there is a strand of thought in our culture of what people think the Bible says that is heretical and false and actually counter to what the Bible actually says. If you really dig deep and maybe into the recesses of your own mind and your own subconscious about the Bible's message, and definitely your non-religious and spiritual but not religious or anti-religious friends, they think the Bible says, you better be a good little boy or else. You better be a good little girl or watch out. They think the Bible says good people go to heaven and bad ones go to hell. They think the Bible says if you die with any unrepentant sin in your life, then your soul is at risk. They think the Bible says God cares about those who believe in him, but he happily condemns those who do not. He might even create some people with condemnation in mind. They think the Bible says for our God, religion is a game. <clears throat> And we're the pawns, or we're like little ants playing on the playground, and he's the kid with the, with the magnifying glass, you know, burning us up. And they think the Bible says that to doubt any of the words on the Bible, uh, on the Bible's pages is to put your soul at risk, is to, is to insult God. They think the Bible says your soul is all that matters, and your body doesn't matter, the earth doesn't matter. All that matters is getting your soul to heaven one day, and then when you become a Christian, your life will get easier and better and maybe even richer and less confusing. They think the Bible says Jesus is coming back to rescue Christians from this evil earth before God destroys it and sends all those nasty sinners to hell. They think the Bible is a set of rules and rituals that you're supposed to follow to keep yourself in God's good graces. This is what people think the Bible says. This is not what it actually says. <clears throat> the Bible actually says there are no good people and bad people because we are all a mess. The Bible says clearly the goodness of God is better than the badness of all of us put together. The Bible says if you put your faith in the goodness of God, he can restore that image of goodness in your life. He can bring you back from the grave of death and condemnation. The Bible says God's desire is for every person to know his truth and his grace and to be saved. Every person. No one is created for condemnation. <clears throat> I hope that during the next several weeks as we uncover some of the truths about the Bible that this will be a chance for you to hit that reset button and reignite your own search for truth. You'll stop listening to what everybody else tells you the Bible says, and you'll pursue the truth for yourself. And let this be the first building block. I'll give you a very basic understanding of what the Bible is. The Bible is a story about God. The Bible is a story about God. This is kind of the thesis statement for our series. The Bible is a story about God. What this means is that you are not the main character. You are a supporting actor with a part to play. This part should come as a relief 
to you because the fate of the world doesn't rest with your success. The fate of the world, if you have a bad day, the world is going to keep spinning because you're not the protagonist in the story of life. If that does not come as a relief to you, I, you, uh, you, might, you might be a narcissist, actually. Um, this should be good news. The Bible is a story about God. He is the central figure. Now, the key word there is story. Story is the key because stories are how human beings have always made meaning. Everything else has changed about the human experience, what we wear, how we eat, how we get by, how we get married, all that stuff has changed. The one constant throughout human existence is that we tell stories to make sense of life. We used to do it in the caves with paint. And now we do it in movie theaters, you know, with Christopher Nolan or whatever. Like we are making sense of life by the telling of, uh, of stories. Without stories, there's no meaning to the lives we're living. So here's the deal. When Christians say the Bible is holy, it's not because we think this book in its physical form is untouchable. It's not because we think if you doubt some of the words on these pages that your soul is at risk and we're insulted. It's not even because if you take this book and burn it, we will be offended and come after you. That is not how we look at the holiness of the Bible. The Bible is holy for Christians because we believe that those 66 books told by those uh, 40 plus authors in nine genres over a thousand years time, that it comprises the master narrative about God and his intentions for creation. That's what makes the Bible holy for us is because it is the best story, the best possible story that could be told. And I'll just walk you through the Cliff Notes version real quick of that story. The Cliff Notes version is that God created everything that is to be very good. God was very pleased with creation, very pleased with the wonder of the universe and the spinning planets and the expansion of it all and the beauty of it all and with you and with the animals and everything. God was pleased with it. And we believe that because we are the most conscious, conscientious, intelligent beings that we know about, which is scary, I know, but we are, God set us as stewards over creation. <clears throat> and he gave us Two commands, really. Two things he asked of us. He said, let's be in love and y'all be in love with each other. And time and again, we have decided that God is not the protagonist in the story. I am. Time and again, we've decided that God's will doesn't matter most. Mine does. We've decided time and again, yeah, it's nice to take care of other people, but only after we take care of ourselves first. Now, had we followed those original two commands and, and not disrupted the order with which God created everything, we believe that we would have experienced heaven on earth. But our disobedience to those simple commands has created a disruption in the order of the universe. It has created a corruption of our relationship with God and our relationships with each other. And the result of that corruption is this total fallenness that we experience. There's the world as we know it, this violence, this greed, this selfishness that pervades the world, that, that kind of thing that we've seen a lot this week. That is the setting or the backdrop for the story the Bible tells. 
What happens next is what happens in every story. There's conflict. There's a great conflict in every great story. And the higher the stakes, the higher the conflict, the better the story. <clears throat> and the conflict in the Bible story really has very little to do with us. The conflict in the Bible story is between the justice of God and the mercy of God. Because in the face of our disobedience, the ways that we have gone wrong, the things we've done to waste the potential of this creation, to, uh, to dis devalue, undervalue the, the life that God asks us to steward, to not take care of planet Earth the way God would have asked us to, all the things we've done to disobey God's simple command to love, there must be a price to pay. We know this. We're wired for justice, that's why we love for people to get their due when they do harm. Why are we wired that way? Christians believe we're wired that way because we're created in the image of God and part of that image remains. And if God is a God of, if God is really God, then he must be a God of justice and there must be a price to pay. And if there is a price to pay for our cumulative sins, everything that everyone has ever done to to disrupt the order of things and the way things should be, the way we should love each other, <clears throat> if there is a punishment that's suitable for that, it must be the worst. It must be death. Romans 8 says the wages of sin is death. We all know that's grammatically a problem. The wages of sin are death, as we've covered that ground before. That is what is owed. And so that's what's happening on the one hand. If God is just, there must be hell to pay. On the other hand, if God is God, then he must be all loving. If God is God, he must be all merciful. If he tells us that we're created in his image and all we're created to do is love, then he must be love. And so if he loves us and we've screwed up, then, then naturally he's going to tell us it's okay. It's going to be like when my, when my son comes to me after he broke his mom's lamp. And I'm like, I won't tell her if you won't, baby. Just, just blame the dog, you know? Because I'm a big softie. And if God is a God of love, then he must be a big softie too. And he must know that he created me to have these desires that I have. And so he must understand how weak I am. And if he really loved me, he would tell me it's okay and pat me on the head and send me on my way and forgive my sin. So at this point in the story, when God is faced with having to respond to what we've done, there is tension. The plot is thickening. The tension is building because both things cannot seemingly happen. And it seems like the enemy of the story, the antagonist has God cornered. There is no way for God to get out of this one. There is no way for the enemy not to win. He's checkmated God because God has no good options. There's two choices God has. Either path God chooses will end with the antagonist, the enemy winning the story. If God chooses justice, we're toast. The enemy's happy. If God chooses love, we're unaccountable. We have no good reason to ever change our ways. Once again, the enemy's happy. Either way, he wins, and it seems impossible for God to be totally true to himself, just and merciful, while still overcoming this enemy. So that, guys, that is the basic plot line of the whole Bible, the dramatic tension between God's wrath and his love. And here we have the resolution of God. 
One man who one time in one synagogue told one story about forgiveness and love. And as he was preaching, he was interrupted. He was interrupted by religious people who break, broke in his sermon, made a commotion, and they were dragging in a half-naked woman by her hair. And they left her lying there in shame before him. And they said, if you are who you say you are, the fulfillment of the law, then we expect you to deal with this accordingly, biblically. Presenting Jesus with the same trap the enemy always presents. Those two choices. Because if Jesus gives her justice, in the Old Testament times, justice for an adulteress like this woman who was caught in the act of cheating on her husband would have been death, execution, by stoning, according to Old Testament law. So if Jesus is just, according to the law, he's just one more bigoted, hateful religious leader, just like all the other ones. It's no different. He loses all of his power in his movement. But if Jesus is merciful and he tells her it's okay and just sends her on her way, then he is a coward in the face of her sin and a heretic, and he has no power. So he's faced with the same trap as before. But Jesus is full of grace and truth, John's gospel tells us. Jesus brings love and wrath justice and mercy, and he doesn't fall for the two-way trap of the enemy. This is what he says. He says, you guys, you guys, you're right. This woman's awful. She's the worst. She broke her vow to God and to her husband. She is a home wrecker. Let's stone her. And they get all up in arms and they grab their stones and they said, who's first? And he said, let's get in line and let's start with the one of you who's never made a mistake before. And whichever one of you guys has never messed up before, you throw the first one and then the rest of us will follow. And finally, for the first time ever, the religious guys shut up. Because this world doesn't know what to do when faced with both grace and truth at the same time. It's something like the world has never seen before. This world is paralyzed in the face of mercy and justice at the same time. And one by one, those religious guys, they leave. And Jesus asked the woman, he says, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, sir. And he said, neither do I condemn you. And he said, now go and leave your life of sin. He's loving toward her without letting her off the hook. He's merciful while also being just. You guys, Minnesota, Baton Rouge, and Dallas this week should have been reminders to all of us how badly the world needs more Jesus, his love and his justice, because everyone is picking sides in our culture right now. Everyone's saying you have to choose. Either black lives matter or blue ones do. Either you're going to be a conservative, one of us, you're going to be a liberal, one of them. Either you're going to, you're going to be on the, the good side or the bad, the right side or the wrong. It's either or. 
It's the same old trap the enemy's been setting from the very beginning of time. And it works like this. If he can get us to stereotype each other, he can get us to hate each other. If he can get us to hate each other, he can get us to judge each other. If he can get us to judge each other's sin, he can get us to forget about our own. And then one day you wake up craving justice for everyone else and expecting mercy for yourself. That's exactly what he wants. That is not the way of Jesus. Jesus doesn't choose sides. He didn't choose the Pharisee's side or the adulteress's side. Jesus didn't pick a side this week in America. Black lives matter to Jesus. Blue lives matter to Jesus. Those thoughts are not mutually exclusive with him because Jesus didn't come here to win petty arguments between equal groups of sinners. Jesus came here with one purpose in mind, to launch a surprise attack against an unsuspecting enemy who thought he'd already won and to rescue all of the sinners in his grasp and to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat and to claim you and me as his own again. And he accomplished that cosmic victory in the least likely way imaginable. He got arrested. And then he went to trial. And even though he was innocent, he was found guilty and he faced the most gruesome punishment imaginable. And, and the, the reason we Christians, if those of you who are not Christians and you wonder about us sometimes, the reason we sing and obsess over the cross so much, the reason we sing about blood sometimes, it's not because we're bloodthirsty religious wackos, most of us, some of us maybe, not all of us. It's because we understand that when Jesus went to the cross, the stakes could not have been higher. Every life hanged in the balance as he hanged on the tree. We understand that something so infinitely terrible happening to someone so infinitely innocent is a reminder of the lengths to which God went to repair that which was broken and to restore us to goodness again. On the cross, we find Jesus taking wrath he did not deserve. And in response, he gives love he should not have given by human expectations. He forgives the men who put him on the cross as he hangs there. This is the third option, the third way of Christ. Justice and mercy. Wrath and love. Grace and truth. If we start this series, I just want you to know that the reason we believe the Bible is holy is because we believe it's the greatest story ever told. We believe that it tells the story of the greatest hero known to man. It is the Bible's proximity to Jesus that makes it holy. This is not a magic book. It's not full of potions. You can't just flip your way through it and then land on a magic verse that tells you what to do today. That's not how this works. It's not hocus pocus. It is the story of a hero, our hero. And it's the centrality of Jesus to the story that makes it holy. 
So as you set that, hit that reset button and as you begin your own journey, your own search for truth, as you erase everything that you've been told, the Bible says, that it really doesn't say, as you start this new journey, hopefully by maybe cracking open your Bible, reading the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of John, that's where I recommend people beginning. I pray that you will understand that Jesus as the center of the story is what makes it holy. And if you've been someone who struggled with the Bible and that someone has used the Bible against you, someone has held the Bible, a preacher like me, and told you that because of some words in this book, you don't belong. You should go away. You're not good enough. Pray that you will be merciful enough with religious types of folks to give God and his word another chance. Jesus has been changing the course of many lives for thousands of years, and he can change yours and mine today. Let a new day begin with your relationship to the words on these pages today, here and now. Just say, okay, I'm in God. I trust you will meet me here. Let's pray.